Kim Duke, and I am married to an addict. Uh, that sounds weird saying it out loud because I've been replaying that in my head for the last two hours and what I would say. Um, it doesn't seem real yet, although I saw him in treatment. But yeah, here's my side of the story um, as told by me. Uh, so I guess I will talk about maybe my family history. I'm not going to give out names or specifics. Um, just kind of talk about how I've seen addiction growing up in different areas. And then I guess until Chris was in treatment and now. Um, so growing up, I had some relatives that had issues with substances, jail time, prison time, um, drug specifics. I don't quite know. Um, but yeah, so I knew of some of that growing up. My parents did not use or didn't drink or anything. My dad stopped drinking when my mom got pregnant with my older brother. Um, so I didn't see a whole lot of that growing up, I guess in the house, we didn't see any addiction. So it was, you know, not common. And then, gosh, it's been maybe five, gosh, five years, four years, maybe four years. I had a pretty close family member. Again, I'm not going to say names just because it's not my place to talk about their addictions. Um, that we didn't know was using or was drinking, you know, um, had an alcohol issue, didn't know they were using alcohol. And this had been going on for years that I guess we didn't really know about. We thought maybe, um, maybe, I don't know, misuse of medications, but like prescribed medications. Um, but then this person went through withdrawals. Um, and this is prior to the job I work now, but their withdrawals, they had seizures and very scary. I remember that person being in the emergency room and, um, I was there, other family members were there. And I remember the ER doctor very clearly looking at, um, this person, although this person was obviously lying about use, you know, drinking at all, um, and said that, um, you know, the only, the only time your tongue will shake like that is when you're through going through alcohol withdrawals and, um, alcohol withdrawals will kill you. It's very true. Now I know more about alcohol withdrawals, but you know, they will, they could kill you potentially. Um, I had to be the bad guy and convince this person to be open about their alcohol use because hard to treat something when someone won't be honest about it. Um, and I think that moment that day is when my views kind of changed more about alcohol. Um, just seeing what this person was going through. Um, they were hospitalized to get through their seizures and their withdrawals. And then, I mean, multiple relapses after that, unfortunately, um, which is hard. Um, and I was very angry about alcohol after that. And I know when I would see Chris drinking at that time, I would just get so angry because I knew what this person went through and how it affected me. And I felt like he wasn't understanding on how that affected me as a person. Um, and then I guess 
really that was the only really other close person besides Chris in my life. Um, my own substance use, I guess we can go there. I don't have like a significant history. Um, I mean, you know, when you're young and you get drink for the first time at your friend's house when you're younger and it's disgusting and you hate it. And I, you know, even in high school, I wasn't a big drinker. I'd go to parties with people I was dating and they were drinking. So I felt like I had to drink. I was very introverted, very shy, which I still am. Um, so I felt like I had to drink a lot to kind of, um, be a part of the crowd, unfortunately. Um, but I mean, I didn't drink even a whole lot. Then I hated drinking um, because it. I don't like lost the control. I didn't like that then because I would drink to the point where I black out because of things that were going on during my adolescence. Lots of trauma, um, lots of issues there. Um, and then, you know, even into my adulthood, I, there were times where I would drink more than I probably should have because I was dealing with things from my past still that I hadn't really dealt with formally. So there were periods where, I mean, our children were obviously old enough, but I would drink really heavily and um, black out and do really stupid things that I'm very ashamed of. And it got to the point where, you know, I thought Chris me might not make it, you know, he was going to leave. Um, and he did say at one point that he, you know, he wanted to leave and I started going to therapy and I started dealing with a lot of things I hadn't dealt with, which was very helpful. And I was always that girl that would drink and to deal with her problems. Cause it's easier to do that than deal with anything. And, um, I guess even the past few years, I mean, I guess over the past year, my drinking actually decreased a lot because, you know, I started trying to get healthier and all that. And, you know, when you work out, you don't want to be under the influence of alcohol. So I just would just not drink very much unless we were hanging out with people. And, um, but even there are times where I would be drinking where I'd think like, do you have an issue with drinking? Because, you know, I only drink on the weekends. I would only binge on the week, you know, not every weekend, but on occasional weekends. And and then I get angry at myself. And so I would not drink so much. Um, and I guess my personal, other personal experiences, I work in mental health and I work with chemically dependent people. Um, lots of alcohol withdrawals. We see that constantly. And, you know, I'd hear people's stories about how, they were drinking, you know, half a pint or a six pack, a 12 pack a day. And they're going through like you see such significant withdrawals and how it can affect people. And I see it on a regular basis. And, you know, you come back to your real life and you look at people around you and you wonder, like, could you potentially have a problem? Um, and it really kind of opened my eyes to drinking in general. You know, we would hang out with people who would drink a lot. Um, and we started doing this podcast, you know, and we'd always drink when we were podcasting and it just became something we did. And that was very eye-opening too after everything that had happened. Um, so I guess that's my own personal experience with it. You know, family history, my own history, um, and how I work with it 
but even working in mental health and chemical dependency, I guess I didn't know I was going to experience things to the level I am now. Um, so I guess Chris really wanted me to try and pinpoint when I, sorry, wait, my nose here. Um, when I noticed his problem start and it's so it's gosh, it's so hard for me to try and pinpoint when it started. Um, I kind of always known that he has had a history of you. I mean, when he was in high school and I didn't really know him then, but like after high school, he, you know, (laughs) smoked a lot of pot and I noticed that, but he's always been someone who can quit things really quickly. You know, we ended up getting pregnant and when I was 19 and he could quit it just like that, it was so easy for him to quit things. He's such a determined person. So when he has something like he's very determined to do, he can just shut it off. Um, so, I mean, we got pregnant with Landon when we were 21. So we didn't drink a whole, I mean, a lot until I guess the kids got older. Um, gosh. So I don't think it's hard to pinpoint when like the addiction really started, I guess maybe in the past year, um, you started doing comedy more and unfortunately comedy shows and all that open mics are in bars. Um, he started doing, you know, running an open mic in a brewery. Well, it's available to you. You have a couple while you're, you know, on state, you know, while you're there and doing things and, you know, a couple here and there, and then it would be coming home and having more, you know, a couple more. And, uh, you know, over the past, it's just so hard to pinpoint over the past year, it just like progressively kept getting more and more. Um, I guess there was a period where he, uh, he went and shot a show for someone in the cities and I got a call at like one in the morning two maybe two it was probably one in the morning midnight at that time that he couldn't drive home he had too much to drink and was always putting the blame on well they kept buying me drinks they kept buying me drinks and I you know me trying to be like well why you know like if you have a certain amount you can't drive and that was a very scary evening because he basically walked around Minneapolis until he could sober up and I laid in bed hoping I didn't get a call that he you know got hurt or whatever else could happen and you know we talked about him getting a hotel and he didn't want to get a hotel because he didn't want to waste the money so it was like him walking around sketchy areas of Minneapolis until he could sober up um and then there you know there were other times I mean it was consistent drinking every night and it got progressively you know it was just a couple a night and it got to be at least a six pack a night for months I can't even count months and months and months there were periods where I don't even remember where he wasn't drinking um and I would bring it up because I noticed it you know I work with people who go through alcohol withdrawals and I would say you know you I'm getting a little worried about you um and I would bring it up and I didn't want to be the nagging wife. Um, so I would just kind of let it go. And there was another time where he was in the cities at a comedy show. 
and you drank way too much couldn't drive home and it was just like is this gonna become a thing now where like I'm gonna constantly worry if he goes to a comedy show in the cities if he drinks too much is he gonna be able to drive home and I don't want him to drive home obviously um and another thing it's hard to pinpoint when the problem started because Chris is a very he was a very high functioning alcoholic um he didn't get DWIs he didn't drink and drive he was very like and the person in my life also that I talked about earlier was the same way. Didn't drink when they drove, um, could hold a job down, no DWIs, no issues with the law. So it's hard to say when a problem started, when there's not those factors to put into play. Um, he took care of the kids. The kids were always taken care of. The, you know, he was able to keep his job keep doing comedy, keep doing pictures, keep doing everything else for people. Um, so maybe, I mean, and then last year, he, his drinking got to the point where it was just like almost like he'd do things that were, I wouldn't, I would make excuses in my head like, well, he's drinking a lot because of this. He's drinking a lot because of that, you know, his brother's bachelor party this and that like of course he's gonna drink a lot that's okay people do that but then it was every night at home after work at least a six pack um and I brought up maybe if I brought up um how much money it would he would be spending um maybe he would quit or maybe he'd decrease the amount and we, it was always a talk of you know, let's decrease the amount you're drinking. Let's try and go a couple of days without drinking because in the past he could show me that, yeah, I can stop drinking for a month. I'll have sober, you know, no juice January. I think we did, um, where he didn't drink all January and, but it's, it was different this time. He didn't want to, it was like, he didn't want to stop and I couldn't understand what it was because I've never felt that desire to keep doing something so often. Um, then, gosh, he, you know, we had talks about decreasing the amount he drank, decreasing the amount he drank. Um, and then come New Year's Eve, you know, we had a couple, I mean, it was constantly where we were fighting. And, you know, later in other episodes, we'll talk about how it affected our relationship. Um, but, um, New Year's Eve, he wanted to go and hang out with some of his friends and I had to work till like 11, 1130. And I knew he was going to drink and it was watching him just take him back and take him back and take him back. And I don't know how much he drank before I got there. And Chris was someone you couldn't quite see when he was intoxicated because he could play it off very well. He wasn't slurring his words, not stumbling around, not like doing those kind of things, which normal, you think a normal drunk person does those things, but he very high functioning. Um, and what was so upsetting is I'm watching him take back all these drinks and thinking that all I wanted to do is be with my kids, bringing in the new year. And instead I'm worked all day and now I'm driving my husband home after drinking this much after we've had talks about his drinking um and then I mean weeks go by 
and we have the conversation more and more and I'm trying to remember specific dates, but it's really hard because the last couple months has been a big blur, but um, we had the talk again and yep, I'm going to decrease how much I'm drinking. I'm going to have one. I'm going to have two tonight. Okay. That's better than a six pack. And then, um, gosh, we had a moment where we were going to go hang out with some friends and he had drank his whole six pack or so before I even got home from work. Um, and then um, he didn't want to go hang out with our friends and I couldn't figure out why. And basically he was like, yep, I finished my six pack. Um, I drank some of your beers, which, okay, you know, and then it was, okay, well, then we don't need to go. And then I did this thing in my head where I dealt with it in a personal level with a different family member. I work in it constantly. Am I starting to project how I feel about alcohol onto him? Is Does he not have a problem? Well, so we had this conversation where I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to back off. I'm not going to talk about your drinking anymore. You know, maybe you don't have a problem. And it was like a light bulb went on that where he said, no, I think I do. Like you saying that didn't make me feel better. So maybe I do actually have a problem. And he showed me all these empty vodka bottles that I had no idea he was drinking 100 proof vodka. And it was very like, it was scary. I was like, this is way worse than I thought it was. Um, when we talked about, at that point we talked about, do you want to go to therapy? Do you want to do some treatment? And it was just like, he quit. And I thought he had quit for weeks. Um, and that first week was awful. Um, his withdrawals, I don't know physically how he felt. Um, anger, lots and lots of anger. That first week he was withdrawing. It was, I couldn't, like, I didn't think we were going to make it. I had days where I'm like, I can't live like this. I need to pack up. I need, we need to leave. I can't. And again, I'll talk more about this in a for different episode we do, but it was awful. And then all of a sudden, one day it changed. He was joking with me again and wanting to be around me and want to, like he, when he was going through his withdrawals, wouldn't make eye contact with me, wouldn't touch me, didn't want to be around me. It was the worst Oh gosh, I don't. It was one of the worst feelings ever that the person that you love doesn't want to be around you and it's your fault. Like I kept thinking it's my fault that he's going through withdrawals because I made him stop and you know, and then there were moments where I'm like I should just let him drink cuz maybe then he'll want to touch me and be around me and maybe like if he's sober he won't want to be with me. Um, but again, like he got better. He was hanging out with me. And um, I guess leading up to his attempt that that actual night at work, I was telling one of my coworkers um, that this is the best I've ever seen Chris. He's doing great. He's sober. He's happy. He's joking around again. It's like, like, it's great. I'm like, our marriage is so great. He's so happy now. Like that first week was awful, but now he's great and happy. And, um, and it's like I was <laughs> like telling somebody that and then getting a call from Chris and hearing how 
distressed he was and I couldn't tell like what was going on and him asking me to come home and um I mean I was at work and yeah asked me to come home and couldn't figure I knew in my gut and I've been with Chris for 14 years of my life so I kind of knew something wasn't right um so I start okay nope I'll leave work right now not an issue I'll come home and um leaving the hospital and not being able to get a hold of him I knew what was kind of going on I and then I uh you know, call my mother-in-law and she called, got a hold of my brother-in-law and he headed over to our house before I could get here. Um, and I originally didn't call police at that point cause I didn't know what was going on. I had no idea. Um, maybe he just turned his phone off or maybe he was on the phone or whatever. And then I called one of his friends and his friend even said that they were concerned about him. Um, um so driving 90 miles per hour on my way home. Um, and I get here and, you know, my brother-in-law called, kind of warned me before I got home. He was like not in a good state. Um, and the period of when I talked to Chris last and when I got to the house was maybe like a, maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes. Cause I was driving so fast. Um, and then the state that I saw him in and I don't know obviously we're doing this podcast different in this all this but maybe he'll talk about what he did I'm not sure but just seeing him in the state that he was in I replay that moment in my head maybe twice a week where I can still see how he looked in bed and sometimes it's like the he that was the worst I've ever seen him ever um and I couldn't figure out what was going on. You know, I'm a nurse. I should know what's going on. And I couldn't figure it out. I'm looking around the house for alcohol. And I mean, at the point I called 911 because I knew something was wrong. He's minimally conscious, couldn't talk. His eyes were glazed over. And I knew that you can't, within that period of time, even if you drank a bunch of alcohol, it's still going to take a little bit to get to you. Um... And so when I heard what had happened, like it made more sense. And obviously we go to the hospital and Chris has attempted before and the way he was that one time towards me being at the hospital still plays in my mind too. He didn't like, he had this guard up and didn't want me there. So I had that fear again, like he's going to do this again and not want me around. And when he comes to, it was terrifying. I remember driving up to the ER and watching him walk out of the ambulance and, thankfully had just been working and I mean I work there that's my job and then you know it becomes a very real thing when you work in something and it happens in your life um so obviously he went into the hospital was admitted um and it didn't seem I mean it's still like playing everything back that night it doesn't seem like it real like and I had hoped in my head that that was his rock bottom like please be his rock bottom because I don't know if I can live like physically live through this again you know seeing someone in that state and knowing like in my head I thought it's my fault that he did this you know he was so ashamed because I made it such an ultimatum like you quit or I'm done and 
he couldn't escape it. Um, that's a very scary thing to know that some something can have so much power over you. Because in my head, I would be able to give give anything up for him or the kids easily, and I've never felt such a strong addiction to anything. So I, in my head, I'm like, this is more than me. This is more than any of us. And, um, so, and I know so much about addiction and knowing that, um, they want to want to get the help. And I, you know, I've had conversations with his family prior to this, in, you know, his attempt and him being hospitalized that, you know, we can want him to get better and change and want to get help. But until he does it himself, it's not going to make a difference. I've seen people who get committed and forced to treatment and they don't, they get out of treatment and they go back to it because they're, they don't want to change or they don't have the desire to change. Um, so thankfully, you know, when he was in the hospital, we saw that desire for him to want to change and he had, could sober up, you know, days and go through his withdrawals in a, obviously in a very, um, in a medical place instead of at home. And, you know, I work in, obviously, I've said it numerous times, I work in the field, so I know what treatment facilities are out there. And I knew one of the best ones, obviously, was Hazleton. And I called and tried setting things up. And thankfully, it all worked out. And he got to go there. Um, And it was a blessing in disguise, like, seeing him grow through treatment was a beautiful thing and I am so thankful for where he is right now um and it's just crazy to think months of unknown and we're here now and you know now knowing that my kids are gonna grow up with this healthy father and and they didn't know I mean they don't they don't know about Chris's attempt or um, how severe his drinking got. I mean, they knew dad liked to drink beer. Um, but to know that he's, I mean, I think back a lot, unfortunately. I hate that. that I do that a lot. But like if he hadn't attempted, like would we be where we are now? What could I have done to stop the drinking a year ago you know there's a lot into play with that um but I'm grateful for everything that has happened you know and him getting treatment and learning about himself and him getting help and treatment I learned a lot about myself as a person and a wife and who I want to be and you know it also tested me because I had to be a single mom and try and keep things together here and you know as he's getting help and it's been a crazy journey and one of the reasons we decided to do this is because when he was in treatment I did a lot of research trying to find like podcasts about wives talking about their side and you know Chris told me to go to Al-Anon and all that obviously with what's going on on in the world right now that's not even an option but I just to hear someone's other side of it I thought would be nice for people to hear um, so they don't feel alone. It's when you're in this world where you're the spouse of someone who with an addiction, it's, it is hard because you're always 
wondering what you did wrong you know and um replaying pretty traumatic events that have gone on and you know wanting the best for that person and um hoping continue you know hoping that they're continuing to get better every day and whatever you can do as a spouse you know i would want to listen to podcasts where yeah how the spouse felt and what they were going through and hopefully someone will listen to this and not feel alone um because for i mean i had family surrounding me and my babies and obviously chris but for a good month and a half and friends i shouldn't say there was lots of friends but i did feel very alone because i felt i was in a different world dealing with you know helping chris go through this but um i guess that is i don't know if that's my time i guess i have a minute left but i hope people watching this or people listening to this find benefit through this i guess mini series we're doing that they can find something out of it even if they're not a spouse of someone with an addiction or there's someone with an addiction or even a family member or you know a parent a child anything like that i just hope that they can feel comfort and hopefully some of the things we talk about and it probably will get very real um and i'm gonna listen to things on chris's side of things that i didn't know and he'll probably listen to my side and we'll hopefully grow together during this process and that's all we can hope for um all right well i don't know how to end a podcast so i'm just gonna say that's it All right, way more nervous than I thought I was going to be. Um, hi, my name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I guess uh, the way that we did this when I was in treatment, um, there you uh, you give like a, a a synopsis of your your life, I guess. And what led you up to landing in treatment. <clears throat> so I'm just going to start there and then future episodes will kind of go back and forth as to what that shit, you know, dive deeper on that shit. <clears throat> um, one of five boys uh, grew up in an LDS family. And I think... Um, like relatively normal childhood, you know, if you're a kid in a big family, um, people, uh, I mean the brothers, we, we all kind of watched each other while our parents worked and tried to get us in like a better environment throughout life. Um, the first house that like I can have memories in that neighborhood was, a little rougher than I initially had like realized as I'm looking back on stuff, but, um, we'll touch on that shit later. But like, basically there was, um, just some stuff that happened that, 
Um, well, fuck, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, uh, the first like bit of shame that I can remember having was, um, my, my brothers and, and their friends found a bunch of old nudie mags from somebody's house and, um, they made like a fort and had a loose floorboard and had put all these nudie mags in there. And, uh, I eventually found it, uh, with one of my friends and I was six at the time. So no real concept of what any of that shit was that I was looking at. Um, and eventually got caught or admitted to my mom or something. I forget, but, um, had to go in front of a Bishop in an LDS church and, like repent basically like tell them all of the sins that I had committed which is fucking weird because you know six years old you didn't commit any you didn't do anything wrong uh, like in in my eyes at least um the like my childhood there was a, a lot of fighting a lot of stuff that happened like some of the most chaotic stuff um, ha- all happened before I was nine years old, which is weird to think like all out school brawls, um, just constant fighting. There's a homeless guy on the way to school. There was my best friend got part of his leg ripped out by a, by a dog and there's blood everywhere. And there's, there's just so much wild shit that happened. Um, and I was constantly getting in trouble to the point to where I, um, got, um, expelled and forced to transfer to a different school, uh, because I was such a, a problem. Um, and then we fast forward to, um, like everything else kind of wasn't so bad. I would get in trouble from time to time in the other school, but stuff started to mellow out. Um, I remember one time, uh, my friend and I went door to door and we didn't know what we were doing, but his mom had given us weed to give to people and we like collected the money we just gave them bags and then they would give us money and then we brought it back to her um i I think i was eight when that happened and um yeah it was pretty fucking wild um there's another event that happened in there there's a couple more but well i'll have to like come back to those um when I, so we, we moved a little outside of town. Um, my parents, uh, like right, right when I got expelled and transferred to a new school, there's only like three weeks of school left. So, um, we had a new house and, um, and then my parents, um, my dad could kind of sense that something was going on at work. He worked at this paper mill in, in Oregon and 
um, he kind of sensed that something was up. So he decided to look for a job, found one in Minnesota. He came out here and I think he was out here for three, three or four months before we came out here. And so like we celebrated Christmas. So I was 12. So celebrated Christmas. And then, um, then we moved to Minnesota and we like brought in the new year, year 2000 in this shit hotel, you know, with seven people just crammed, um, yeah, in Minnesota, it was dick cold and just fucking sucked. Went from having an insane amount of friends back in Oregon to having two friends up until I was, or for the first year, I only had basically two friends. And then I got, I became friends with some kids, like the skater crowd, you could say, but also like the, the jackass kids. Um, jackass was super popular, which if you don't know is reality show turned into a movie where they would just do stunts. So we did that type of shit. Um, but to rewind a little bit, the first time I ever got drunk, I was 12 and, um, I was at, we, we'd gone back to Oregon and I, uh, my brothers were like punching me and making me take shots. And, uh, that was my first drunken experience was basically being forced to drink, which, you know, I don't know. It's fucked up to think about now, but when it happened, it was, I don't know. You got drunk and then you felt like you were fine. So it was, wasn't that big a deal, but then I didn't really drink again until I think I was 15. Um, got drunk on my own. Yeah. By the, by the time I was 15. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm having like anxiety and panic attacks and, um, major depression. Like before I even know what's going on, I have nobody knew what those things were. They just thought I was some weird kid freaking out. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So then I got drunk when I was 15 and then from there it was just like whatever I could get my hands on. Um, or I would just be thinking about how I could get drunk. So how soon could we get drunk again? And then, uh, when I was 16, we got high for the first time. And once we smoked weed, um, I was constantly wanting to smoke weed. The last two years of high school, I, or the last year of high school, for sure, I smoked, smoked weed every single day. Um, drinking, obviously, but I didn't do any hard stuff until I had gone to New York, um, tried shrooms a couple of times while I was out there. Um, smoked a ton of weed. I don't think I got drunk while I was out there, but definitely smoked a shit ton. 
Um, and then I, uh, yeah. Then I met Kim. I got married. Um, I mean, there's like a, a bunch of stuff with our relationship. It's a lot to go into right now. So I'm going to try and keep that under wraps for now. Um, but yeah, just like a tumultuous relationship up until, uh, we, we, I mean, yeah, it was crazy, hectic and just nuts for a while. Um, got married when we were 19. Oh, I did cocaine a couple of times, three or four times. And the only reason I didn't do more cocaine was because there just wasn't cocaine. I also like would huff duster randomly too. Kids used to do that. Um, yeah. And then, so yeah, fast forward, um, drinking on and off while we're married and living in an apartment. Then we had to move back to my parents' place, drinking, drinking, drinking. And, um, and then uh, Kim and I were separated for a little while and I had stopped smoking weed, but then I got back into smoking weed and, and drinking throughout that too. Then we got back together and all the while, like my drinking wasn't really out of control, especially like when Kim and I found out that we were pregnant, like I wasn't, it didn't really bother me to not drink that much. And then we got our own place and it was like funny to, uh, after Landon was born, um, to like, after a day of work going to the fridge crack open a beer and we would kind of joke about that and um it just seemed funny and then it became like cool to be into different kinds of beers like craft beers and ipas and all that shit so i jumped on the hipster bandwagon and um just loved trying new beers and then it was like funny to drink randomly like or at least it seemed like it was randomly like I my brain would be like wouldn't it be funny if we drank right now I don't know so drinking increased and uh one time I had my brother come over babysit the kids so that I could go and drink with the neighbors and um I was in gymnastics and like did like, I don't know, learned a couple of things and then just was able to do them forever up until I was 30. One of those things was being able to front handspring over shit. And I did a drunken front handspring over a fence, buckled my knee and limped home and, uh, threw up for the rest of the night. And that was the first time that I was asked to stop drinking. So I stopped drinking for three months. And then Kim, uh, who is my wife, um, asked if I could handle it again. 
And that was the last time that I had like a good stint of not drinking. I would like, I would, if I wasn't drinking during the week, then I would go hard on the weekend for sure. Um, and then it became, well, I got injured on my 30th birthday. I had a massive asthma attack after drinking all night. And, uh, plus I had like thrown my back out and my back, I had hurt when I was 19 and uh, it would get injured like once a year, but it was, I was always able to recover from it. But after my birthday, my 30th birthday, I could not recover from it. Um, I was a freelance photographer, so my work was, you know, reduced a lot. And so I was at home more and able to drink more and I would drink for the pain and I would take pain meds and drink and all that stuff. And, um, it got, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it got, um, so bad that, um, I, I had done a bunch of like injections and these ablations where they cauterize the, the, the nerve endings, um, so that it'll hopefully stop hurting. Uh, but that none of that shit worked, which, you know, sucks. So the next resort that I was looking at was, um, getting this, uh, the surgery done where they shave off part of the disc so that it, it will like move back and not, uh, be pushing up against these nerve endings. And I asked a physical therapist about that and she seemed irritated, got annoyed and, um, told me that I just need to get used to being this way. And to give you some perspective, my muscle mass at that point was equivalent to like an 80 year old man on average. And I was 30 years old. So I wasn't able to help anybody or I wasn't able to do anything. I was people constantly having to help me. My parents having to help me. My Kim was having to do everything. I couldn't work. All I could do was like lay down and have this pillow underneath my hips to try and alleviate the pressure and, yeah. So, um, I, after that physical therapist told me that, that I need to get used to this, I was like, well, this is nothing. I'm not able to do anything, just a burden. So I had my first suicide attempt and, um, yeah, I was hospitalized. And, uh, the very next day, um, I had a doctor prescribe me gabapentin, which nobody had done. And what gabapentin does is it's neuropathy medication. So I had pain that would shoot down all the way into my toes from my lower back. And, uh, that was something that changed my way of living like instantly. And so it sucked that this fucking physical therapist couldn't have had one more thing to say. But anyways, that was insane. Um, being on the adult mental health unit was terrifying and awful and all of these things. 
And they asked at that time if I had a drinking problem or if Kim thought I had a drinking problem. And at that time, it didn't really seem like it. Um, one reason being is that I'm a high functioning alcoholic. So, um, it's very hard to tell when I'm drunk, especially if I'm aware that I need to appear not drunk. So once I got back, um, it seemed like the drinking increased because I would, I would say like, if I'm taking all of this gabapen and ruining my liver, I'd rather. So I did a bunch of physical therapy at a very specific location that did like isolated certain muscles. It was, it was pretty intense. Um, but that like exercise is what exercise and the neuropathy medication made shit a lot better. And so eventually I just felt like I didn't need it anymore. So I'd rather be drinking. So, um, drinking increased a lot, started doing comedy and every time I would, almost every time I would do stand up, I would drink and, um, yeah, it's hard to remember. And I only learned this after going through treatment and all of this stuff is that like, when you drink that much, even though you're not blacking out, cause I, I like perfected my method of drinking, which was just drinking until I felt good. And then I knew my tipping point and I would never go past it. I never felt like I needed to in between all of that. I should mention that I would randomly do shit like take more pills than I needed to or huff duster again randomly do just random shit but never follow through and do more of those things like it was just that um yeah for some reason I would just do that shit and then I was able to stop except for drinking um drinking more and more, especially when I go down to Rochester to see my brother and his family. And, um, then we start a podcast and we drank every single time we had a podcast, almost, almost every single time we had a podcast. Um, I'm, we're sneaking alcohol to, um, family events. Booze is just always around. There's always booze in the fridge. And, um, and then this last year I, uh, I, yeah, the last 12 months, I should say, um, I, the longest that I went without drinking was seven days and, uh, yeah, I was constantly trying to sneak drinks I would drink like in hiding so that I could be at the same level of drunk as everybody else by the time they started drinking. Um, and just doing that all over the place, hiding beers and things. And, um, yeah, I got to the point to where I was, yeah, I had, 
multiple hiding places for booze. I would buy cases like decoy cases so that it would look like I hadn't drank so much. Um, and I would fill those boxes up with cans so that it looked like, you know, I hadn't drank so much when I had drank a ton. And then, yeah, slowly Kim was trying to get me to slow down because she just noticed that I was, if, if it wasn't for the sheer volume of cans and things, um, I don't know that she would have said anything, but there was just so much. And, uh, There was a breaking point where when she was asking me to slow down, I started buying bottles of vodka and was hiding them. Uh, this was over the last, you know, from November until February, um, where I was, yeah, hiding vodka and, and mixing it in with all kinds of stuff and yeah. Never, never driving while doing it. All of these things are like all these excuses that make it seem like you're not an alcoholic, but, um, I, uh, it, it got so bad that I was hiding empty cans in those boxes and I was drinking Kim's supply and like trying to hide all of these ridiculous things and eventually um, owned up to how much I was drinking and all of these hidden bottles and things made it a week with nothing. And then like in an instant, just went right back to it. Um, withdrawing super bad, super irritable and like uh, insomnia. I felt like I was manic it was so wild. And, um, yeah, it got to the point that, um, I was, I was drinking so much, um, every night. And so at this point, Kim thinks that I have not been drinking and, uh, I'm, drinking a, a ton and just able to, to hide it. And I didn't want to admit that I was an alcoholic. I just wanted people to not judge me was what I thought. I thought everything was fine. And the real problem was that people had a problem with it. So, um, I, uh, yeah. I had a rough, well, I mean, I still have major depression and anxiety and panic attacks and all of those things and trying using alcohol to suppress that stuff. It eventually explodes and, and gets crazy. So, uh, one night I called and in, in like my manic episode, I quit our podcast. I quit comedy. I quit. I dropped a ton of friends. I think I, I had like almost 2000 friends on Facebook and I think I have like 
300 now. So I just was ramping and like saying that I needed to get rid of anything that makes me happy or makes me feel better because I have an addictive personality or yada, yada. Um, so I had, um, yeah, I felt like I had let people down because I was running on a comedy mic. I was booking shows. I was doing all kinds of things. Um, still taking people's headshots for comedy and all that stuff. And, um, yeah, I dropped all of it. And so I felt like I was never going to be able to escape alcohol. And so one night I called a friend, was apologizing about all the stuff I had done and, uh, was drunk. And he told me to call Kim. I called Kim felt embarrassed, but again, I'm talking pretty much as coherently as I am right now and just said, never mind. I'll see you when you get home. Went right upstairs and tried to hang myself. I don't know what happened. I don't know how the knot came undone, but next thing I know, my brother is in my room and then police are filing in and then EMTs and, and I had a eight day stay at, uh, the adult mental health facility in the, uh, St. Cloud hospital. The fucked up thing about being there was it still took five days to admit that I was an alcoholic. And, um, there's this lady there that helped me out a ton. And yeah, I eventually, like as soon as I agreed to go to treatment, things just started moving super quick. And I ended up in this treatment facility super fucking quick too. But yeah, the whole time I was in the hospital, I was, I don't say I didn't want to leave, but like I kind of didn't want to leave because I felt safe in there. Cause I didn't know what I looked like as a sober person out in the real world. It was fucking scary. And I even had two shooters of, uh, I think it was like 99 bananas or something gross in my jacket that I was planning on taking once I got out of the hospital as like a reward, which is nuts. It's so ridiculous to think about. But, uh, yeah. And then I went to treatment and I know that all seems like super rushed to get to that point, but we're going to do this series. And like I said, break down kind of how all that stuff, like embellish a little more on how that really affected our family and, and my friends and, and all that stuff and the realizations that I had, cause obviously I'm out of treatment now. Um, while I was in there, um, yeah. Another thing that I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do every episode while I was in treatment. Um, 
there was, so we had to read our stories to, to the group. And, uh, this one guy couldn't quite remember all of the things as is like super common with alcoholics. Like, like I said, you don't have to get blackout drunk to have fucked up memory issues. So, um, this guy emailed his family and said, I want you guys to write back one way my drinking negatively affected uh, the family or affected you personally. And I thought that was unbelievably brave and scary to do. Um, but I think that it will help in like my process of making amends is knowing kind of, if, cause if you're not aware of how you actually hurt people, it's tough to just give a blanket sorry and say it was the disease, you know? So I think it's a, a good way to try and get through this shit. Um, so I'm going to read, I asked my family to do that and I'm going to read a letter from, uh, one family member each episode. I'm not going to say who the letter's from each time, but here we go. Letter number one. Um, there were times when I knew you had been drinking and our discussions were different. You behaved differently, not better or worse, just different. That saddened me because it changed your personality and I love you for being you. I felt like our interactions were fake because I wasn't interacting with the real you. It made me miss the real you. <sighs> Fuck. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Because um, when I didn't want to go to certain family functions, I would drink to not care about whatever wherever we were, whatever we were doing. So I guess that, that makes sense. So hopefully we can make amends for that by staying sober and being real with that family member. Um, I think that's it for this episode. Um, we're doing this hopefully to help other people and to help myself deal with this stuff. I mean, the coronavirus going on right now, I can't really go to AA meetings and shit like that. So this is kind of one of the big things that I have going on right now. So I'll, I'll continue to share what I've learned and hopefully Kim will be able to share what she has learned as well. So, uh, thank you guys for listening. And with that, I will pass.